Welcome to Fernway Insights, where prominent leaders and influencers shaping the industrial and industrial tech sector discuss topics that are critical for executives, boards, and investors. Fernway Insights is brought to you by Fernway Group, a firm focused on working with industrial companies to make them unrivaled segment of one leaders. To learn more about Fernway Group, please visit our website at fernway.com. Hi, this is Paolo Baldesi, Senior Vice President of Fernway Group. Welcome to another episode of Fernway Insights. Today, our guest is Lou Van Tarr. Lou is the CEO of Battelle, the world's largest independent research and development organization uh, in the world, headquartered in uh, Columbus, Ohio, that delivers technology solutions for the national security, healthcare, energy, and environmental markets. And I would love to emphasize that uh, Battelle is actually a no-profit organization, one of the largest in the world to be that way. So with that, thank you very much for joining us, uh, Lou, today. We're really glad to have you here with us. Thanks, Paolo. It's great to be here today. So having said that, I would love to start our conversation today talking a bit about the innovation landscape and what companies are thinking about when it comes to R&D. So especially coming out of COVID, how the landscape changed? What are the most challenging problems that leading R&D organizations in the world are trying to solve today? Yeah, I think it's a great question because, uh, and it's even changed more with what's going on in the Ukraine right now. I think coming out of COVID, many people had uh, run on endorphins and uh, done what they could to keep businesses going. And, and we did remarkably well, despite the challenges that were in front of us. But I think companies are getting ready to rev up again. They're getting ready to, as people come back together, as the world economies start to recover, to really move out. And with that, you see a lot of infrastructure systems, how they're going to build out, how they're going to put new supply chains in place, how they're going to look for alternatives to supply chains in places where uh, maybe key elements don't come from the best parts of the world to have uh, have nice continuous relationships. And as we look at that, R&D is dealing with the same problems everyone else is. There's a shortage of scientists and engineers. We're all feeling that pressure. We're feeling the supply chain shortages and, and the challenges. And you know, at least in the U.S. as a nation, we're just not developing enough STEM graduates and getting enough kids through college to fill those gaps. So we're all trying to find ways to increase our efficiencies and to be able to basically out-hire each other while we go through this shortage, at least now, where I think we've gone through a, a period where a lot of free money is floating around in the system from all the stimulus. And a lot of that money has gone toward R&D, toward uh, to ways to deal with some long-term problems. And we're all trying to use that efficiently. You know, if you look at the areas we see lots of areas where people show a lot of interest, but I think the ones that uh, that I'd say we're seeing the most are environmental impacts and how do we, not just carbon and carbon dioxide, but uh, plastics, toxins in the environment. You know, how do we how do we manage our natural resources better and how do we get to a more sustainable environment? And it's something that one country can't solve. It's uh, like all being in the same tub together, right? You're you're in you're kind of in this together, and things that go into the atmosphere are going to hit every. And so it, it has a global component as well. Biotech, we've seen the first handful of gene therapies come out and be approved over the last few years after you know 20 years of working on this. And I think we're just at the tip of the iceberg with what's possible. We know how to solve some diseases that we don't know how to be, we don't know how to get delivered to the right part of the body. And there, there's some gaps in innovation that uh, the people are working on now that could really change people's lives that have some of these tragic diseases. 
I think our energy transition is a huge element of not only solar and wind, but how do you build batteries that can do grid level storage at the backstop so you can actually have some recovery mechanisms to, um, to, to last for a while when the sun doesn't shine or the wind doesn't blow? How do the power companies deal with the fact that you're going largely from one-way distribution and transmission to what could be continual bi-directional in, in some future worlds where we all might have batteries in a solar panel on our roof and batteries hanging in our garage uh, to build what could be a much more resilient architecture, but also a much more challenging architecture, not the architecture that's built out in the world today. And then finally, I think connectivity. You know, we continue to see costs down for high-speed connectivity. We know that's a huge issue uh, for equity in our, our low economic communities and in places around the world. And, and with G5, as it rolls out, and the U.S. is behind in this, we see the ability to connect more and more devices, to really start to get some kinds of autonomy, to get some kinds of you know, 3D viewing and things that some folks are calling the metaverse. And of course, with all that comes the cybersecurity and the challenges by having an even bigger uh, space to try to cover and protect. So a lot going on. <laughs> uh, fantastic. Within that context, I'd love to focus on Battelle now. Uh, you actually guys say that you, you focus your energy in solving the things that matter the most. So within the context, what are the discoveries, the technology and innovations advancement that you guys are most proud of? Yeah, so Battelle's a great company. You know, as you mentioned, I grew up in Bell Laboratories, and, and it's the only way somebody could have gotten me to move from um, the middle of Kansas out of college to go to outside of New York City was to work at Bell Labs. And it was a fabulous experience. But I watched Battelle kind of die, and I came to Battelle, uh, or I watched Bell Labs kind of die after it got split up and went through the years because it didn't have the business model. So I had the opportunity to come to Battelle and uh, really built that out. And, and the, the history here is fabulous. Most people know us as the uh, having a big part to do with the invention of the Xerox machine, CD-ROMs, bar scanners, but it goes so much more. The Sterling cover on a golf ball, I'm a golfer, it was actually invented by Battelle. So the non that covers for all of us hackers that uh, hit the ball in the middle and don't have to replace it anymore like we did when I first started playing so many decades ago. The first hard candy shell to keep chocolate from melting actually came from Battelle and, and hundreds and hundreds of more things that we have done in history. But I'll, I'll hit on a couple items that we're really proud of. I think that they're more contemporary. One is about 10 years ago, we did the first case where we actually took a, a paraplegic, did surgery and put a chip in his head so we could literally breed his brain signals. We built the computer algorithms and the AI software, which you know, 10 years ago was, uh, was not as mature as it is today, and learned to decode those brain signals, built a sleeve that goes on his arm. And with that sleeve, we have little metal discs, and we can send a pulse to each of those metal discs to stimulate the muscles. And um, that young man can um, open and close his hand. He can drink from a cup of coffee. He can brush his teeth again, all by thinking. So that was the beginning of, of things we worked on for the last decade and continued to push forward. Today, we're working on sleeve for a stroke rehabilitation. With one of the local hospitals, we are, are testing on patients and getting ready to start trials. Very proud of that. Uh, when COVID hit, Battelle was able to pivot very quickly and try to see how it could help the world. And we built a, a system for cleaning N95 masks and built the system out in a matter of days and in a matter of a week got FDA approval deployed all around the country in, the, in the, day, the darkest days of early days of COVID when we didn't know a lot and cleaned 5 million masks for the country um, over the coming uh, year and a half until the supply caught up again. One of the most, if you watch movies like Dark Waters, there's uh, these chemicals called PFASs that are the strongest bond in nature. So they're really good at some things like waterproofing, fire retardant, nonstick cookware. But because they're the strongest bond in nature and they're very small, they're causing environmental problems. 
and we're learning that they're likely a carcinogen. We've been doing testing with the EPA for a long time and destroying it because the strongest bond in nature is very, very difficult. So today we typically filter it, in which case we just move it somewhere else and put it in landfill, or we, um, we burn it, which just takes it from a ground problem to an air problem. We actually invented a technology in the last year that can actually destroy the bond and actually take the bond apart into harmless chemicals. And we're uh, testing and putting the first uh, systems out into the field to actually be able to show we can do this in the field right now. So we have a risk, a very generous and rich pipeline beyond this, but it really is an innovation company with a lot of brilliant people that uh, have a passion for you know, solving these hard problems. And we can come up with the resources, the time and the support to help them succeed. So it's a fun place to work. And imagine that a nonprofit R&D organization might have uh, different challenges from a, let's say, a for-profit R&D organization that can attract probably more funds and can attract talent maybe easier in an easier way. So can you just tell us as a nonprofit organization, as you actually can compete against others and uh, do that successfully? It's a great question. It's the first time I've ever worked in a nonprofit. I'm kind of a raw meat uh, profit and loss guy with my history. But we really want run Battelle like a for-profit company. The difference is instead of paying dividends to shareholders, as we make money, we put about 70 to 80% of it back into our business to, to invest in more R&D. And we put 20, 20% plus actually into our communities, as, as, and which we tend to focus on STEM education. But, you know, I think the broader question is... Running an R&D organization is really tough with our economic model. There's a reason most companies don't do this. They'll have an R&D component maybe, or they'll buy R&D from someone, but then they do the manufacturing. They put the, the item on the shelf that they're going to sell. They sell the software with a license or a way to get that continuing revenue stream. And, and that's how our economy is set up to work. So it's really tough to run an organization that's just going to do R&D and try to get enough royalties and partnerships out the back end. So what we do is we balance it with some more traditional work. We uh, manage national laboratories, as you mentioned, uh, largely for DOE, but also for Homeland Security, which uh, brings in some fee-for-service revenue. We also work in um, a number of um, government sectors, uh, both for research infrastructure, for some defense work, chemical biological protection work we'll do for DOD and three-letter agencies. And we make fees off of that type of work. So that type of work gives us kind of a base to operate off of with some scale that then gives us the ability to do deeper investments into, into R&D. You just mentioned the dual mission of Battelle, scientific development, but also giving back to the community. What kind of trade-off does that type of mission requires? Yeah, so for us, Battelle is, you know, it's, it's a private independent organization, but we actually turn our 990 each year into the attorney general of the state. And um, we basically evolved over the decades. The company's been around for almost 100 years. So we basically have a deal with them now that at least 20% of our profits will go back into the community each year. And two-thirds of those will stay in central Ohio. So we, we've kind of worked the detail out of a model that, uh, you know, the company didn't have this back in the 60s when it had been Xerox. The company made a lot of money on that. It owned a big part of the company when it spun out. And uh, a lot of the local... Uh, politicians decided that was way too much money for a nonprofit to have. So the company kind of got mugged back in those days and lost a lot of that equity that caused problems for decades afterwards. So we're very, we spend a lot of time and attention now to make sure we have a model with our politicians and our government uh, well understood and built out and agreed to. 
so we can can file. And then what we what we do is I, I like to think we're every bit as creative and professional in our in our money giving through philanthropy as we are in our execution. And we focus on STEM education, as I mentioned a minute ago. We're really trying to create the next generation. And we, we focus particularly in communities that, that are less economically able to provide those services themselves. So we do it through lots and lots of partners. We do it through uh, some of our own work. We actually manage a high school here and in Columbus that we're going to expand and build a second one that's had uh, kids coming from the poorest districts for 16 years and everyone graduates and 90% go to college offer less price, less cost than the public schools do. So a different model of teaching that the company had uh, researched decades ago that's been successful. We've set a goal that we wanna be able to impact a million students a year throughout the country. We're on our, our way to hit that goal. We're probably gonna hit it this year. We have set a goal to try to hit it by 2025. And we were at about 830,000 last year, up from about 100,000 uh, five years ago. So we've really grown our impact and we wanna to continue to expand that. And I think COVID has given us the opportunity for that to become even more important because as, as teachers around the country, we're doing double work and um, trying to deal with some kids in and mask and some kids available and, and double teaching. We were able to provide resources that many of them could use for a science lesson or a talk on a subject or, or a, a research project idea that was part of our curricula that we're using here locally. So it's been, I think, important to our communities and something that, um, that our employees are very passionate about. Talking of real impact. Very humbling. We'd love to switch gears for a second, Lou. And um, I've been looking at, the, at your bio, and your story is very fascinating. You grew up in a blue-collar community in Kansas and were the first one in your family to go to college. Tell us a bit how a young guy from a middle class, you know, from Kansas, got inspired to become an electrical engineer. Yeah, by accident. I'd like to say I had great mentors and everything else, but I did have a father who was a, my dad was a maintenance person at Goodyear. He worked at Goodyear for his, his whole career and um, he could fix anything. You know, he was responsible for keeping the big presses running and doing those things. He, he became a, a maintenance manager as his career progressed. You know, he was always my hero. And uh, so we grew up tearing apart cars and fixing brakes and usually without the right tools, because while we always had, uh, you know, a roof over our head and food to eat, uh, you know, to pay five or 10 bucks for a special tool wasn't worth it. So I busted more knuckles on brake drums, trying to stretch springs. And, and only after I'd been uh, out on my own for about five years, I was in an auto store and saw there was actually a tool for that. So you wouldn't bust your hand open trying to do it each time. But, but I think that was part of my inspiration. Uh, my dad always wanted to be an engineer. He never had a chance to finish school and, and do that. And then I had a um, physics teacher in uh in high school who said, you're good at math, you ought to be an engineer. And I was good at math. And I liked, I liked pulling things apart and tinkering and fixing them. So that kind of got me started on that path. And then as I got into school and got past the first couple of years of all the drudgery of uh, just the math and physics and started to see it, I really fell in love with electronics. And it was pretty easy from there to, to continue that path. Very interesting. And, you know, fast forwarding the movie, you've become an electrical engineer at, uh, you know, at Bell, and uh, after the general dynamics acquisition, you have uh, moved up the ranks through several positions and made a switch from a technical career to management. And eventually you've become the CEO of Dincorp and uh, now the CEO of Battelle. Two questions on this. Have you ever thought possible? Like, have you ever had the dream of becoming a CEO in the back of your mind? And second, uh, tell us a bit about uh, the most defining moments that allowed you, that enabled you to have this, this career. Yeah, that's a great question. 
you know, not in a million years. I mean, as I came from pretty humble, you know, uh, pretty humble beginnings, you know, my family, if someone passes away and, and you don't owe money, you throw a party. Uh, it's just kind of, you know, how it's gone. The education I got has given me opportunities. I paid my own way through school and it was a public school. Uh, it was very inexpensive, especially back in those days. But that gave me opportunities. It couldn't happen anywhere else. I, I could have never imagined this if I knew now what I knew then. But, you know, you're you're young and energetic and stupid when you start out and you gain experience and wisdom over the years. You know, who knows? I might start my own company or something. But uh, at the time, things like that were the thing risk takers made. And, uh, you know, the job was to get a paycheck and put food on the table and a roof over the head and do that consistently. So I could have never imagined uh, the opportunities that I've had. And and, you know, I'd like to think it's a case I've worked pretty hard my whole career that, uh, you know, certainly luck comes into all this good and bad along the way. But I think I think those who work hardest do get the luckiest over time. You know, there's been so many defining moments, but I'll pick out a couple that are probably the biggest. You know, probably the first one for me, and I was actually just in my mid 30s, had the opportunity at Bell Labs. This was back after the Cold War uh, had kind of ended. The wall had fallen in Germany and it was time for butter, not not swords. And the defense industry is struggling. And I was in the defense part of Bell Laboratories. And, you know, there have been layoffs. There were a lot of struggles along the way. It was a real uh, change of life for everyone. And it, there was an opportunity for a program out of the Intel space that was being developed in an area where I was kind of an expert. And I had the opportunity to be the program manager for that and compete for it. It was a big risk. Uh, I was a hardworking engineer, but I, you know, our company didn't even know what a program manager was. I was part of an experiment. But people supported me and gave me the chance, and we turned that into our biggest program over years. And it really taught me to have the the courage to both take those risks and then also the wisdom, though, to understand what you don't know. And um, I was able to surround myself with people that had a lot more experience than I did to help coach me and lead me through that, that helped make it successful. So that was my first chance of, I think, really uh, taking on something that looked like it was beyond my reach. Could have been, if it didn't work out, you know, the output might not have been good, but being successful with it, and it kind of set off my career to moving much faster at that point. And then uh, years later, uh, several years later, I had the opportunity. I, I was ready to take over as president for that. I was COO of that little organization in North, in North Carolina at the time, and um, General Dynamics had bought all these companies and jammed them all together. And suddenly I was back in the group and, uh, you know, we had put 10 companies or four companies into one. And I had the chance to go run one of the businesses in there. I was running engineering at the time, and it was a mess. I was running engineering. I'd been up there. I knew it was going to be a big challenge. I told my boss no twice. And the third time he asked me, I said, well, I'm telling you no again. It's probably not a good idea, huh? And, uh, and it was really my first turnaround. Went up to a business that was great people, but had just had management that wasn't appropriate for the situation they were in for a number of years. And I uh, had the chance to do that and go in and, and really do a a gut-wrenching, hard, look people in the eye turnaround that took several years, but was very successful. And in the end, it ended up being part of my business after I got promoted to president a couple of years later. Uh, and ended up being the best performing part of the business for the decade that I was president. So it, was, it ended up being in very much my own interest to get that business finished out. But again, it was another risk. It was another uh, chance to go into somewhere where I didn't know anybody and take on my boss's biggest problem. And at uh, which we failed a couple other times. And then I think finally was one that was more of an emotional decision as anything to do I take the big step. I left General Dynamics, which, uh, I, as you said, I grew up at Bell Labs. General Dynamics bought the defense part about 13, 14 years into my career. So on my 30th anniversary, I left General Dynamics. 
And uh, it was a fabulous company. I had deep respect. I loved the board. Uh, they loved me, but there was nowhere else to go. Uh, and I'd been in the same job for 10 years. I really couldn't contemplate doing the same thing for 15 more years and wanted to try more. And the courage to leave that in and a spouse, quite frankly, um, who supported me uh, was a big deal. And I think that set me on the path that got me to Lidos and I got to help split SAIC into two companies and get that up and running and had a $4 billion P&L and then opened up the CEO opportunity at DynCorp, which ultimately gave me the opportunity to come here. And, you know, here I feel like I'm home. I feel like I had a decade left in my career and I financially didn't have to work anymore, but I wanted to have fun and do something that mattered. And, and Battelle's just been a fabulous match. The people here are just the, the best I've ever gotten to work with in my career. Well, very inspiring. Thank you for sharing. Switching gears again. At Fernway, we continue to observe that a lot of industrial enterprises struggle in driving innovation. Most of the time, they actually spend too much time deciding which direction to take. What companies could learn from Battelle when it comes down to decide where to put your energy, where to double down, or where to quickly pivot and exit, regardless of uh, sun cost? Yeah, so, so I would give advice, two things. One is call us, we'll help you as part of our business model is helping companies come through these things. But I think, you know, the industry learned how to do agile software development, what, 15, 20 years ago. And it started with a lot of the companies that are, are, are stalwarts today, you know, the Facebooks and Googles of the world. But in the defense sector, the NSA really started doing this about 15 years ago. And uh, I was lucky enough, I was running a large portfolio there at the time, and we got to learn agile development and see what had been just a disastrous history of trying to develop software in fixed environments for things like fighter jets and things, very complicated systems. But software just didn't fit the way hardware did. And we really learned how to speed things up greatly. We, we learned how to do things in days that used to take years. So we've applied those same techniques to hardware development and science development. How do, you, how do you try to improve the science and the research side so you get more cycles for less money, so you can, be, you can get through things quicker? And you know, I recommend, and what we typically do here is you know, we don't typically start down just one path. We'll look at a couple alternatives and we'll, we'll take a couple paths forward when we're not sure how they're gonna turn out, but we'll have very disciplined ways to look at those paths as they mature. And it really comes down to the cultures. Can you have a culture that's honest and transparent enough that the leaders can see the people tell them what they really think about what's going to work and what's not, and realizing that a failure is just one more learning piece across a successful career. If you succeed at everything you're doing, you're not trying near hard enough. And uh, companies need to even reward smart failures along the way and, and realize that when you're doing R&D and you're looking at new things, it's not all going to work and you shouldn't anticipate it. And if it does, you're really doing something wrong. You're not taking enough risk. You're not doing you're not doing what you need to to move fast enough. And you probably have competitors that are going to beat you. So we've really tried to work through processes and techniques here where we can try to more quickly get an idea of what things are really going to work. The, the other advantage we have where we help companies is we've got thousands of engineers, PhDs. I've got the biggest BSL2, uh, BSL3 facilities not owned by the government in the country. One of the selling points I use when I talk to customers is, you know, how many headquarters do you go in where half the headquarters are laboratories? And, and that's the campus that we sit on of one of our many facilities. So I think having organizations, a, a smaller mid-sized company is not going to be able to, to do a lot of that engineering themselves. They'll have a smart person or two, but they're not going to have the depth that somebody who's just looked at 
a seal or a, or a temperature experience on a bearing or those things for their whole life. And by bringing partners, one of the culture things we use is a term called how big is your team? And, um, you know, how can you partner? How can you get to the answer the quickest? Because I, I, I'm a belief that the most nimble and fastest always win. Even if you're wrong three times along the way, if you get to the right answer before the person going through the step-by-step process over a number of years, you're still going to win because you're going to listen to your customers and you're going to adapt as, as your customers change their mind of what they need as their worlds change. And being agile and being able to adapt quicker, I think, is the key to being able to succeed. And, and that wasn't how I was taught to do it. That wasn't how we did it 20 years ago. But I, I think it's the way the world's going today. And in, in deep science and in a lot of this R&D, we can do things much quicker and with much broader impact than I think we could have 10 years ago. And on that note, coming out of COVID, small and medium enterprises will be driving uh, the bulk of the next uh, growth wave. And those are the companies who actually are experiencing the lack of uh, you know, capabilities or longer bench that maybe a bigger company has. So how a companies like Battelle can help those small and medium enterprises actually delivering uh, innovation faster? So us, and, and there's other companies, we're not the only one, but you know, go to our websites, talk to us. So again, it's not that your company is not fabulous, but if you're running a small, mid-sized company, you're not going to have the depth, the number of engineers, the number of people that have the experience for a particular area that you're struggling with. And getting those things solved quickly through partners, through partnerships, is usually a, a much better way to get to market. I just joined the board a couple of years ago of a battery company uh, that's looking at grid storage level batteries. Fabulous team, an MIT spin out, they're great, but they've got five guys looking at how the battery chemistries and pieces work. And now we've got them hooked up to some national labs, some universities, and basically it just extends their arms. It, it extends, it speeds up their learning and it's to let them get to market quicker. I, I think if you're a smaller, mid, mid-sized company, understand what you're great at and be the best in the world at it. But where you have those gaps, where you have those questions you can't answer, go out and look for help and time does matter. Feel free to send me an email or go on our website and we'll, uh, we'll be happy to talk. <laughs> Thank you. We've touched upon the talent challenge a few minutes ago, but innovation is definitely one of those areas where we keep hearing about talent gaps. How have you addressed that with Battelle? And especially in the light of fierce competitions from uh, other for-profit R&D organizations. Yeah, and we're far from perfect, but for us, it it really comes to two things. It's, It's about the environment people get to work at. And we, we know we have to do some more rebuilding on that coming out of COVID, but I think we were, we're doing a pretty good job going into COVID and we survived okay. And now we're trying to rebuild. We're looking at major rebuilds of our facilities and our laboratories and making sure our people have modern and the, and the best equipment and things to use. I think the environment people are going to work in matters. I think giving people the flexibility that the job can afford, I think it varies job by job as to you know, how flexible you can be with remote time or, or remote work or things like that. Uh, but then for us, the most important thing is we can sell the mission. That's part of what gathered me here. It's the first time in my life I've been able to do part of my day job is actually the mission and the philanthropy that the company does. But the fact that we're able to um, do things that matter to the country that matter to society as part of the will of Gordon Battelle is what we're supposed to do. And then for the money that we give away, uh, we actually can be involved and our people care deeply about how we help create the next generation of scientists and engineers and realize as our population continues to evolve and morph that um, we have to reach into every corner of that population and find every piece of talent. And and so much of our talent as a society 
has been ignored or, or not stimulated, um, not looked at the way they, they could be for all the genius that could be lying within there. So to be a, a small piece of that is, as we work through that to try to create more and more engineers and more that look like our society uh, is something that we're very proud of. And, and it's, it's a story that our, our people are very passionate about. And it's something that I get to do. I get to go see the kids every once in a while. I get to go to some of the cyber contests we sponsor and things like that. And it's, it's always, I, I find that um, even with all the problems in the world that always seem to grow as you get older and grumpier, talking to and seeing the next generation of kids, they're always smarter than we were. And every generation just gets better. <laughs> and thinking of new generations, looking five, 10 years out, uh, what do you think the, let's say, the biggest challenges or the biggest uh, innovation themes are going to be? I hope it's the things that I mentioned in the beginning that we're working on because we're picking the areas that we think are going to be the hardest areas to solve and we're trying to get to solutions in five years. But I think it's really going to depend on what the economies look like, you know, what happens. I, I think we're going to see a reset of a lot of thought processes now that we see what's happening with Russia and Ukraine of, of a world that maybe we thought was getting safer and we've gone for a couple generations now of, um, you know, relative... Uh, you know, relative peace compared to, you know, uh, past, if you look overall, you know, we've pulled billions of people out of poverty over the last uh, generations. And even with all of our problems, global warming, it's, it's the safest, most healthiest time to live in the world that it's ever been. But some of those things could be changing. And I think those are going to be big problems the world's going to have to deal with. I think it's great to think about we're going to have a carbon-free world in five or 10 years, but that's completely impractical. And we're going to have to find a way to actually have a transition. So we still have power and we still have countries that are growing from third world status. And, and as their economies grow, they're going to use more and more power. So we have to find a way to balance, deal with some of the carbon that's going to be in the atmosphere and have solutions that help us live with it while we do our best to reduce it and bring the whole world along. So I, I think those problems are, are plenty big enough that they're going to keep us going. And then I also think the um, since the more we know, the more job, I, I think we're going to continue to see rapid job growth for scientists and engineers. And until we can start creating them at a higher rate, until economies change where more people come back into the workforce. And I, this, this thing, current thing we're in might last more than five years. I, I think the talent war is going to continue to be a thing. You know, it's going to be important that um, people don't just like being paid by you, but they actually like working with you. <laughs> Thank you very much, Lou. We have uh, approached the end of our podcast. But before I let you go, I would love you to share some tidbits of one of the most exciting projects you guys are currently working on. So I won't say too much because it's pretty, it's pretty sensitive still, but we are in the very early stage. If you look at, I mentioned earlier that we have diseases today that we know how to, we believe we know how to cure, but we can't deliver the gene therapy or the drug to the right part of the body. And we're working on some technologies right now that we've gotten through some early tests very early. This is 10 years to go, probably at least, uh, that looks like we might be able to solve that problem. And if that turns into something, um, you know, who knows, maybe I'll even have a Nobel Prize winner on my hand someday <laughs> that I'll be proud of. But, you know, we do a lot of these things. They, they don't all pan out as part of doing R&D. But this is what I'm personally excited about because the change it, it could cause on the world, the world's health, methods to speed some of the biotech things we've been working on for decades to really make them work more like we would like them to from what we see in simulations would be pretty exciting. So uh, not too much more today, a lot of work to do, and uh, we're still uh, uh, wrapping up the IP on all this and 
if it works, you all hear about it in five or 10 years. And if it doesn't, well, it's another one of those things that goes into the smart learning. Sounds like Betel has been on a great trajectory, but I'm sure the best is yet to come. Absolutely. So, <laughs> good luck with everything. And it has been a, an absolute pleasure, Lou, uh, talking to you. I coming out of, from this conversation is very much inspired. So thank you very much. Thank you, Paolo. It's been a pleasure. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Fernway Insights. Please visit Fernway.com for more podcasts, publications, and events on developments shaping the industrial and industrial tech sector.